0: Hello and welcome to the final episode of the first series of Distinctive Leaders, the podcast that brings you unique insights and lessons from some of the world's most inspiring leaders and global pioneers. To finish the series in style, we're bringing you something a little bit different from our usual format. Across this series, we've been treated to so many compelling stories, sharp insights and brilliant advice from some of the most inspiring leaders in the business world. That's why today's episode, hosted by me as usual, Andrew Wallace, is a collection of some of the best and most impactful parts of the series. You'll hear from guests, including Tracy Clark, the former UK and US CEO of Standard Chartered, Richard Fenning, former CEO of Control Risks and partner at Manchester Square Partners, Ros Ronell, Group Chief Credit Officer at Lloyds Banking Group, Lisa Gordon, former CEO of Crystalis and Chairman of Sancost Securities. Temi Afong, Global Head of Customer Channels at HSBC, and Kenton Cool, Mountaineer, with 15 successful summits of Everest. They discuss what's driven them to their successes, what major challenges they've overcome in their professional and personal lives, and how, as a distinctive leader, you can get the best from your teams. We sadly couldn't fit all of our guests into one show, but listening back in preparation for this episode, it's striking how much knowledge and guidance they've shared with our listeners. Of course, if you'd like to find out more about their career journeys or explore all the people we've spoken to during this series, the full episodes are all available to listen to whenever suits you. To kick off, my conversation with Roz Rinal was truly inspiring. Creating gender equality in the workplace goes beyond simply promoting more women. It means bringing down all the barriers they face, explains Roz.
1: So I did not mention this before. One of the, well, I mentioned in the way that there are a number of taboo subjects that We don't talk about, and I know it's not just in our industry, but just in general, I'm a very, uh, I would not call myself a feminist uh, because I believe that, you know, the, the best person for the job is the best person for the job. I believe that it's, I believe in meritocracy, but I do believe that there is more that we can do to help women. And I'm a very big, passionate person in helping young girls, helping young women make it through. And throughout their career, by the way, okay, not not just at the beginning. Uh, for me, there's a couple of things, uh, topics that are very difficult topics that we have, you know, that we still have to tackle. Because the, the, the point about whether we have more women representation and so on is out there. Okay, so this has been out there for a while. People are doing what needs to be done. There's a lot happening. I think some of the root causes are not being tackled as hard as we could. In later career uh, for a woman, I've mentioned menopause, throughout somebody's career, and this links to my point about empathy, Andy, is I'm somebody who's come through a very abusive relationship when I was very young, okay, when I was uh, in my teens. And it's a big taboo subject. Many women and girls suffer from it. Many women and girls don't talk about it. Many women and girls, you won't even know the signs of that abuse happening. But if you can help these people because you do find out what is happening, we must talk about it. Lloyd's, where I work today, has an incredible, they're quite open about it. It's a big, big thing for them uh, to support women in this pandemic in particular. They've made some fantastic program available for women Uh, who, if they felt threatened or at risk, that they could ask the bank to help them go into a different accommodation. And I think that for me, you know, we we need to think about these topics that they hinder women in their careers and, and their lives throughout their career. And we need to start talking about this as much as we can. I understand it's difficult. I understand it's taboo, but we've got to try and remove those taboo because, you know, when I was in an abusive relationship, I can tell you my family didn't want to talk about it because they could see it was happening, but nobody wanted to talk about it because it was so taboo. And I, I've seen it many times where people want to think, oh, maybe I don't see it. It's better I don't see it that I see it, right? And if I stay quiet about it, call it out. You know, if you see a colleague that looks, you know, uh, suddenly withdrawn, suddenly gone quiet, or, you know, is acting differently, be courageous. Go and say, are you all right? It has an enormous amount of impact, enormous. So for me, I would say what, what is the thing out there that will make a leader, how do I differ? You're a differential person. You make an impact. It's not just about, well, I've promoted a few women. Everybody's thinking about this disease this, this, and doing it, thankfully. It's about, let's really think about what is hindering, preventing, you know, call out the bad behaviors, call out the, the, problems that you think the difficult topics, you know, bring it out and help women on their journey.
0: In episode two, Tracy Clark spoke about what makes a good mentor. Mentoring plays a key part in many successful careers, but having that chemistry with them can make a world of difference.
2: Yeah, I think mentoring um, has been really key for me. But Interestingly, despite the fact that I met Mervyn Davis through a formal mentoring program. I feel incredibly fortunate that we we did hit it off straight away and, and knew that this was going to be a really sort of mutually beneficial relationship. I think the, the challenge with many mentoring programs is it is it doesn't always work out that way. Mm. Chemistry uh, is really important. And um, because because the best mentors and mentees have a have a very open relationship that can sometimes be a bit you know the the, the nature of the conversations can be quite sensitive and therefore you really have to have trust in each other and and trust you can't reach that position of trust and until you really have a good relationship and you can't have a good relationship with somebody we all know unless that that sort of that that there's some of those raw ingredients and that chemistry is there and I think that's that's part of the challenge with formal mentoring. And I found the best mentors in my career are those that have evolved naturally out of circumstances. You know, it could be big life changes. It could be big career moves. Having those relationships that and, and having a number of them that you know you can you can draw on in any given scenario is really important. So, you know, for me, mentoring takes on a lot of forms and, and it's always, you know, the, the mentoring programs that give you that, you know, real benefit of mentoring. It can be much more informal than that.
0: I love my chat with Kenton. Cool. The hardest moments can teach us valuable lessons about leadership. Kenton discusses how he had to take personal accountability on a climb up the fourth highest mountain in the world. Lhotse.
3: We were trying to do. Well, it's become known as Triple Crown. So Everest, obviously, the highest mountain in the world. Lhotse, right next door, the fourth highest mountain in the world. And Noopsy, the 19th highest mountain in the world and at the time. And, and actually, to date, nobody has ever repeated it. So we did it in seven days. And we climbed Noopsy, we climbed Everest, and then the hiccup occurs on Lhotse. And we spend all night trying to keep Mr. Lee alive. I had sent Dorji off to bed, uh, for want of a better word, because there was no there's no point two of us, being in the in the tent with Mr. Lee. Uh, ultimately, we were unsuccessful in keeping Mr. Lee alive. And I remember the radio in the morning. I don't know, I forget what time it was. It was 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. And um, being up on and off all night with Mr. Lee. And the radio comes in and it's my base camp manager, Henry. Uh, and Henry's saying, what are you going to do? You know, what are your next steps? I mean, I'm totally over this. You know, this isn't what I signed up for. I was offsetting blame to of Mr. Lee's death to uh, another operator over there. I don't know if that was right or wrong, but th- th- that's that's what I was doing. I, was, I felt very bitter that I'd been put in into this situation because people weren't being accountable. You know, we can we can lo- loop it back in. Mr. Lee had been there for three or four days, and if. The team, or we, when I say we, I, I mean the sort of collective at base camp had known about that earlier. Mr. Lee, I have no doubt, would still be with us today. But that information had been withheld. You know, people weren't being accountable. People weren't acting in a responsible way. They were trying to hide things. Fast forward, we come across Mr. Lee. We were unsuccessful in keeping him alive overnight. Henry asked one of them, what, what do I want to do? I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going home. We're going to ditch the project. One, one mountain to do one more days worth of climbing about six seven hours worth of climbing that's all that's left. I'm I'm going to go back, and then all of a sudden you can hear that crunch 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 outside uh, with Dorji's fifty yards away in a different tent. You know the the, the Sherpas are the Buddhists they they don't really dig death. Well, none of us dig death, but you know it doesn't really vibe with them. Anyway, he comes back and there's a zzzz, as as his zip opens and it's sort of flask of hot tea comes in and his big grinning face. He's a beautiful man. A big grinning face comes in and he looks at me, he looks at Mr. Lee and he used very stark words, he's dead. Now there's no ambiguity in that phrase. He's dead. It's not he's passed away or he's no longer with us or he's gone on to a higher. He's dead. There's no negotiation in that. And, you know, he's absolutely... And he goes, so What are we going to do? And I dodgy. And he looks at me and goes, No, no, we're in this together. We're here to climb the peaks. He's dead. There's, if you go down now, you're not honoring Mr. Lee's life at all. You're not doing him any good, which I know sounds very callous, but he's absolutely right. And they, we can translate that into a different, you know, slightly different environment. If something's happened, this happened. And there's no point reminiscing over it. We have to move on. And it's, and how, you, it's, and it's how you deal exactly. with it. Exactly. It's yeah. how you move on, what your next steps are. They are the important thing. And I was really close of making my next step to be in a downward direction. And Dorji just looked at it. and goes, well, if nothing else. Do it for me. Dorji and I have this deep relationship. He knows exactly how to pull the strings. And then all of a sudden, I am now invested in Dorji. I am now doing it for him. Not necessarily for myself anymore. You know, I feel responsible to him. And, and that's really, really powerful. Really powerful. Yeah, th- th- Let me just explain this in another way. This is really interesting. I, I, For some reason, a number of my friends are Olympic rowers, are ex-Olympic rowers. And the fabulous Peter Reed, who unfortunately now is in a wheelchair, Alex Gregory. Now these guys are I mean, Peter Reed, for instance, highest or largest ever lung capacity ever recorded. And I interviewed Peter Reed on my own uh, podcast, and he was telling me about the dynamics in the Coxless Four in in the Olympics. And you would think, or I would have thought, that what you want are the four very best, strongest rowers. And Pete was like, no. That's not what you need. He goes, I was the engine. He goes, I was an animal. I could pull those oars like nobody else. But there was no finesse to what I did. Meanwhile, you need a gearbox. You know, the gearbox is Alex. So Alex was just a consummate rower. But more than that, he could galvanize the team. And they have something which I think they call seat races. And they will race and they will swap seats. And that's how you work out who actually makes the boat go faster. And it's not the strongest guys. It's not the guys that will pull 2,000 meters on an ergo faster than the next man. Because, and the, and the, the, the key is to get the other three or the seven or however many are in the boat, whether it's you know, COX-64 or COX-8, or make the other seven pull for you. That's how you make the boat go faster. And that's exactly what happened on Loatsey that day. I was no longer there for me. I wasn't climbing for me. Dorji had very cleverly made me invest into him. I was now there. I wanted to perform for Dorji. And it's the same thing in the boats. In, in, especially in, in the eight, apparently. You get the one guy and the other seven are pulling. And uh, Pete said, you can always not row. And the boat would still go faster. Because everybody is embedded to the other individuals. You are there for your teammates. You are pulling harder for the right people.
0: One of the most unique stories this series came from Temi Afong. Temi's life was dramatically interrupted one Saturday afternoon after being shot, but he explains how he gathered the inner strength and resilience to bounce back.
4: The first thing is, and in a way, kind of COVID did the same to the world, but it was a hard stop right? Nothing can prepare you for when the brakes get slammed on like that. So, you know, one minute, it's a Saturday afternoon. You've done what you've always done on a Saturday, go for lunch, maybe do a bit of shopping, drive home, get ready to go out to a dinner party. That's the normal Saturday night or Saturday. And then, you know, halfway through that afternoon, (laughs) your world kind of collapses around you and nothing can prepare you for that hard stop. But um, what you can do, and I was lucky because you know, I, I survived it, is how are you going to react to it? And I remember being in the ER, lying there, and people running around and doing whatever they were doing. And all I kept saying to myself is, tell me this won't change your life. Whatever this is, however it plays out, life will go on. I, at the time, I knew I wasn't going to die, so that was good news. <laughs> So I, I knew I wasn't facing that, but I knew I was facing, you know, a degree of life changing kind of injury, but I was very kind of in the positive mindset the whole way. So I mean, for, for the benefit of the listeners, you know, it was a shooting where the bullet went through my arm, came out of the other side of my arm and went through my thigh and shattered my femur. So sort of between my hip and my knee is a metal kind of pole and bolts and things like that. But you know, within a month and a half, I was back in the gym. I remember saying to, the, to my doctor, how long do people normally take to recover from this? And he said, well, maybe 12, 18 months, maybe slightly longer. I said, I'll see you in six, you know. And I knew that if I didn't get my physical condition back, I wouldn't be able to deal, I think, with the mental piece of the story in a way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's vanity or anything like that, but that's just how it worked in my head. I worked it out. So I was very focused on getting back to kind of full strength, but you know, what it did make me decide, however, was not to live there anymore in due course. So, but you know, when you live in a place like that, it it happens sadly often, and you have to, in a way, accept that it could happen to you one day, and and it sadly happened to me.
0: Early in the series, I spoke with Richard Fenning. Even from the highest achievers, moments of doubt are normal.
4: It's what you do with them that counts,
0: says Richard.
5: A vulnerable moment at the end of every month when we had to sort of tot up whether the amount of money we'd earned that month was how much larger it was than the amount of money it had cost to run the business. I never lost that, that, that constant concern about how are we doing, how's it going, what are the competition doing, what's happening in different parts of the organisation. I'd like to say that after 14 years of running the organisation, I was on the bridge with my binoculars scanning the horizon. I was more often than not in the engine room fretting about whether we were going to have to wash people's cars in order to, make, to pay the electricity bill. Of course, we never were. And it's very frustrating and it's sort of, it, sort of angst-inducing. But I never lost that very basic concern. About how are we doing? Could we do better? Can we make this go faster? Is somebody going to come and eat our lunch? And that—that is—that I talked before about the job of CEO being depleting, and that does have a cumulative wearing effect, uh, or can have on on your well-being. But I never lost that pebble in my shoe that there was that we had to, we had to really, really keep going. And hubris is the absolute enemy of the CEO. When a CEO starts to believe their own propaganda too much, it is absolutely time to cut and go. But yes, no, I, I, was, I was beset with moments of, is, are we doing the right thing here? But turning negative energy into positive energy is the, in many ways the, the kind of key to leadership. So those, those waking up at 3 a.m. fretful and concerned and not being able to get back to sleep is then turning up at the office the following morning or turning up at work, doesn't have to be at the office anymore, but turning up at work the next day with a renewed sense of of kind of vigour and commitment.
0: Lisa Gordon is passionate about increasing diversity in financial services, and she has some great ideas on how to do it. We talk through what that could look like in episode eight.
6: Well, I think there's there's two answers to that. I think financial services particularly struggles with increased diversity and and partly because we are struggling to attract women, minority background, I'd say probably more, we're more struggling to attract women. Um, And I think that's because there is the perception that it's not lifestyle friendly. I think the pandemic will have changed that dramatically, which is a good thing. But think one of the things and it's something that alpha which is one of the companies where i sit on the board which is an amazing company in terms of um culture and opportunity one of the things they're doing is getting much more involved with grassroots education because it's all very well saying we need x percent but we're just not getting the candidates coming through either because they don't see financial services as a as a destination career for them or because maybe they don't know people in that industry so Morgan Tilbrook, who's the founder of Alpha, is actually very dyslexic and he's becoming increasingly involved in engaging with young people to say, look, you know, this is a potential career opportunity. You don't need to have gone to university. He didn't. But so that's one way. The second thing, and and I think that's really important. I think that's something I want Senkos to become more engaged with is actually talking to young people pre-university about some of the options open to them. The second part of your question was around diversity in the boardroom. I think increasingly it's one of my bugbears is that we know that digital is so integral to business now. And when and you know whether you are a digital first business or actually whether you're any other type of business where technology obviously has to form the backbone of what you do. And I look around the average boardroom and Unquestionably, average age is over 50, probably comfortably north of 50. I don't think many directors around most board tables would really, really understand technology to the extent that I think it needs to be understood. Because if you get technology right or you get it wrong, it totally transforms your business. And so I think there's a great opportunity to bring younger people into the boardroom not to say you need to have had previous non-exec experience, which is often, as we know, the, the the main issue for people breaking into the boardroom. But actually to say it's actually your experience in another area where we don't have the experience where we really want your contribution. So that's something that I really want to push harder over the next year or two, is to say, take the opportunity to bring in a younger, more, more diverse a set of people because they have knowledge that you couldn't even begin to acquire. And so take that opportunity. And the fact that it serves a secondary purpose in terms of improving diversity is actually not the prime reason for doing it, but it will.
0: Thank you for listening to our Best Of series episode. If any guests caught your interest in particular, or you want to explore all the people featured during the series, the full episodes are all available to listen to on our SoundCloud page. And we'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Distinctive Leaders Podcast and got as much out of listening to it as I did recording it. If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you could take 30 seconds to give the show a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. If you have any suggestions for what could make this podcast more beneficial, for you be it topic ideas guest recommendations or anything else please feel free to get in touch at andrew.wallace at leathwaite.com thank you so much for listening